0: Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly.
1: Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm! Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.
0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson. And it's Friday the 13th in November 2020 as we record this new episode. I'm sure nothing bad will come to us recording on Friday the 13th in 2020. Anyways, there is a lot to discuss, which is why we are recording a new episode. Jose Abreu is the 2020 American League MVP, breaking the 26-year drought since Frank Thomas won it in 1994. The Chicago White Sox are breaking their mold for pitching coaches, hiring Ethan Katz. The Miami Marlins are breaking the glass ceiling, hiring Kim Ng as their new general manager. And the Chicago White Sox manager broke the law. Yes, we will get to Tony La Russa in a moment. But let's continue to compartmentalize the way only White Sox fans can. And let's celebrate Jose Abreu winning the MVP. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. You wrote on SoxMachine.com that moments like a White Sox player winning a MVP comes along in a quarter of a century. And for everything Jose Abreu has endured, even in a shortened season, this honor somewhat feels like a lifetime achievement award for Abreu.
2: It does, but not in a... Not necessarily in a bad way. Sometimes that's a little bit uh, of a, I guess, a backhanded compliment that the work that the person did this year uh, wasn't maybe their best or maybe wasn't uh, the best uh, thing going, but it just happened to be that the uh, person was overdue for an honor, so they give it to him. In this case... Just with the nature of a 60-game season, and with you know, a pretty tight race with Jose Ramirez and DJ LeMahieu, but you know Abreu just had a uh, you know had a couple of things going for him. He had uh, some leader uh, some some spots on the leaderboard with a slugging percentage and RBIs, and he uh, had a nice team story behind him. And he also played a really good defense and ran the bases okay. Or I should say a really good defense, you know, relative to him and especially for the position. So. Uh, the normal things you would normally kind of look at when when assessing a first baseman, you know, poor base running, poor defense, or not a lot of defensive value. And in Abreu's case, like not hitting righties last year, like he corrected everything he needed to correct. And at least over the course of a 60 game sample, it was as good as anybody.
0: Yeah. And of course, Freddie Freeman won the MVP in the national league for 2020. So just like 1994, When Frank Thomas and Jeff Bagwell won the MVPs, it's first baseman again, winning the MVPs uh, in 2020. And uh, it it was great to see as far as Jose Abreu. It obviously means a lot to him. I didn't know that his grandmother passed away very recently, just a few weeks ago. Uh, So that brought him to tears, especially because his grandma meant a lot to him and to his family. Uh, Obviously, he has a special relationship with his mother. So this award really meant a lot to Abreu in winning it, uh, which was great to see as far as that type of emotion when the announcement was made. Now, we have mentioned for a while, moving forward with Jose Abreu's career, Now winning the MVP, I think the question is, okay, what's next for Abreu? And this is a a tricky time for hitters like Jose Abreu in their career, Jim. And this is something that you also astutely pointed out in your column, that Paul Canerco was able to fend off regression because of age. And he had some of his best seasons in his career at the age of 34 and 35. But after age 35, went off the cliff. Uh, And we see that with all these types of sluggers, even Miguel Cabrera at this stage of his career is a shell of his former self. Do you think Abreu moving forward can continue to fight off regression and maybe repeat what Canerco did by having outstanding seasons in his age 34 and 35 season?
2: Well, I can see it both ways. I can see that it could be tough for him just being a big-bodied right-handed hitter who, you know, has a big strike zone or a big hitting zone, likes to swing, likes to put the ball in play. You know, it it strikes me as a little bit like Canerco, late career Canerco, in in that when he was wrong and when he was off, he just hit a lot of grounders to the left side, ground into a lot of double plays. And Abreu led the league in double plays this year. Um, And so that's just a profile to where if it goes wrong, it could go wrong, like in a hurry. I think Jermaine Dye had a similar thing where just uh, once the contact uh, quality just drops off, there's nowhere for him to go. He can't really draw walks the way hitters might uh, to help, um, you know, buoy production around the occasional homer. So that's the case where, you know, you just got to enjoy it while you can because it could fade away. But in a Abreu's corner is, you know, knock on wood. He's his health has been fine, you know. He's he's like hasn't really had any injuries. He played all sixty games this year, uh, has been in probably the the to use a cliche the best shape of his life. But he was a uh, kind of a bad body guy in Cuba, so I think you know probably it's truer for him than most. Like you know maybe even in his uh, earlier twenties. He wasn't necessarily in the shape that he is now. So you know, when you look at uh, Canerco, he had the knee injury and the wrist, uh, the recurring wrist issue. Uh, Cabrera's had the uh, ankle and 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 leg problems uh, and hip problem, I believe, also as well, like uh, just um, holding him back. And Ryan Howard was another guy I mentioned who just you know was a really big body. So uh, when you look uh, at a brave compared to those three guys right now, he doesn't have any kind of obvious physical flags holding him back. So. He might be somebody when you look at his profile. The way he was able to bounce back already, like last year when he had a OBP below 300 against right-handed pitching, that was the that was the case where oh maybe the decline is coming. You know maybe that, that three-year deal wasn't such a great idea. But the fact that he bounced back from that, partially because of the better shape he was in, makes me think like maybe he's got a chance at uh, you know having a graceful decline to where you know maybe this is his peak and and every year is going to be like a little bit tougher from here on out. But You know, like an Edgar, maybe not Edgar Martinez type because he hit the walks, but just the kind of hitters who just have really good bat control, really good uh, idea of how to find the barrel, even if it's to the opposite field more than the pole field as he gets older, just has a way of making it work for longer than people give him credit for. So I can see it breaking both ways, but I think as long as he has you know, no physical uh, issues, no uh, obvious recurring injuries, I, I think that gives him a better shot than maybe some other guys have had.
0: Yeah, the exit velocity and the hard-hit numbers for Jose Bray, I mean, puts him in the top 5% in all of Major League Baseball. So the strength is still there. But you do make a good point, Jim, is that it's the quality of contact, though. Can he continue to keep up those numbers going to 2021 and 2022? And in his media conference to to discuss as far as winning the MVP – He hasn't been shy on what the goal is in 2021. It is to win. No more excuses. The White Sox, according to Jose Abreu, need to win in 2021. And if they're going to be able to do that, they really need Jose Abreu to continue to hit like he did in 2020. I think it's possible. We'll see what happens in 2022. But I think as far as critiquing or analyzing Jose Abreu... It's a bit different when we talk about like Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert. They still have the prime years ahead of them. We are now exiting the prime range for Jose Abreu. That doesn't... Theoretically, theoretically that's true. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that he's not going to be good. He could still be great. But I think it's one of those situations that you have to take it on a year-by-year basis. And let's face it, he's got two more years left to go. Uh, with the Chicago White Sox as far as his contract. And uh, again, I am I am hopeful, and I do think he can fight off regression. But after 2022, you kind of get in the danger zone. I know that there's cases like Nelson Cruz and even David Ortiz being able to to fight off age and, and regression. But for White Sox fans, we saw it this season with Edwin Encarnacion where... Mm-hmm. You know, it just come. It comes at these elite hitters rapidly, and when they fall off the cliff, it is a nosedive off the cliff. There's very few hitters that are able to sustain this type of run. But all the points that you hit, Jim, he's in better shape now than he was when he joined the White Sox at age 27. I wish I could say the same, uh, personally, <laughs> but I, I, I'm very happy that he won. And I'm sure when Vegas and all the sports book releases their numbers uh, as far as their 2021 futures bets, I'm probably gonna lay more money down on Jose Abreu leading the majors and RBIs again. It was a good bet in 2020. And let's face it, Jim, uh, if he's gonna continue to bat third and if these younger hitters have another season and maybe the White Sox do make a big splash in free agency. This offense has a chance to be better, and that should give Abreu more opportunities to drive in runs, and if he can drive in 125 or 130 RBIs again, I'm not sure if he's going to be in consideration for MVP because with a longer season, that's where you get things complicated like Mike Trout's going to have a 9 or 10 war, and it's really hard for voters to ignore that. But Silver Sluggers, All-Star Games, the accolades should continue to build up for Jose Abreu. Uh, with his White Sox career. Now, I'm mentioning all this, Jim, because as we talked about with Paul Konerko, comparing the two, this is always a fun little thing that sports radio and sports podcasts always do, is make these types of comparisons. But I think we can all agree that Frank Thomas is the best first baseman in White Sox history. If you want to argue the fact that he didn't play the majority of his games at that position, uh, that he was frequently featured as a DH. Okay. We could have that conversation. Um, But I still would consider Frank Thomas in his prime years when he was a first baseman, the best first baseman, the White Sox have ever had in team history. Now, Canerco in 15 plus seasons with the White Sox had a 29.2 war. According to baseball reference, Jose Abreu is currently at 23.7 war. In just half the time, it's a five and a half war difference between Abreu and Conurco. It's feasible, Jim, that Abreu over the next two seasons with the White Sox could pass Conurco on the war leaderboard. But who do you think is the better choice to be the White Sox' second best first baseman in franchise history ever? Conurco or Abreu? It feels like Conurco
2: is so integral to the basically the the crowning achievement of the White Sox franchise that you have to give them a lot of extra credit for that that I think like player for player I would go f- with Abreu and, and not really have second thoughts about it. Canerco uh, was like a very respectable first baseman for a really long time it's hard to do what he did but you know also Abreu didn't come over until age 27 like he didn't have the uh, benefit of uh, you know the kind of player development and 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 the ability to start his career with lower expectations, the way Canerco had so just the way Abreu's career has unfolded, the way he dominated Cuba and the way he came over and was immediately a star first baseman with the White Sox is really impressive. So I would give Abreu the personal edge, uh, but when it comes to just like White Sox first baseman and and like a heavy emphasis emphasis on the White Sox. I think it's going to take like another postseason or two for Brayu to close that gap and, and and be the kind of figure that Canerco is right now. But I think he can do it. I think the White Sox are in position to do it, and uh, you know he's already got at least one postseason home run under his belt. So that was nice to see, and that's I think a big thing to cross off his list was the lack of winning seasons, lack of postseason appearances. He's uh, he's uh, off the schneid in both cases, and, and it's more the White Sox are off the schneid with Abreu there. And not, uh, it's not a personal failing, but it's a start in putting a dent in that particular area, but he's still
0: got maybe one or two more seasons to go in that regard. It does. It's one of those research items that really sneaked up on me when comparing Canerco and Abreu. I mean, Abreu's not going to pass Canerco on like the home run leaderboard unless he starts hitting 60 bombs a season. Uh, I, that's just not going to happen, I don't think. I think he could hit 60 home runs the next two seasons, but he needs to hit a lot more to catch up to Canerco and have over 400 with, it, with uh, the White Sox career. But as far as overall quality, that, that did surprise me in the sense of, man, you could pass Canerco in all-time war with the White Sox. And uh, when you do these leaderboards and 10, 20 years down the road, uh, when other bloggers or other younger baseball writers look at White Sox history and see who are the best ever at the positions, I do think Abreu is going to pass Canerco, Jim. And we'll look at Jose Abreu as the second best first baseman ever in White Sox history. But this is one of those good conversations to have because the White Sox have been really taken care of at this position mm-hmm. since Frank Thomas came onto the scene. And uh, hopefully when the time comes and the White Sox decide to move on from Jose Abreu, that Andrew Vaughn can continue to carry that torch.
2: Yeah, the the one thing about uh, Canerco, too, and just that affects my thinking, is just the way his career ended. Like he had a bad 2013 and then 2014 Shouldn't have been there. Um, You know, just a White Sox loyalty thing, uh, you know, letting them come back. And, you know, I think a lot of White Sox fans got were happy that he did. I wasn't one of them, just I felt like uh, they were, you know, in, in Marcus Semien being traded uh, was I think one of the consequences of having Canerco taking up that roster spot is not getting an opportunity to see what Semien could do with the White Sox. But uh, the last two years were combined, he was worth uh, a negative two. Uh, he's two wins below replacement uh, those two years combined. So you're looking at like, when, it, when I'm thinking of Canerco, I'm thinking of the guy who was worth you know, 31, 32 wins versus the one who ended up at 29. So I think that gives maybe... Abreu one more year to go to meet like I guess the mental standard I have for Canerco because you know depending on how Abreu's end of career unfolds and whether you know, the same kind of loyalty is extended to him, Abreu's numbers could come down as well at the very end.
0: That's true. Hopefully, Abreu has his Game Two World Series moment like Canerco did, uh, hitting the grand slam. Cause then that that I think that would help cement him to be second overall as far as all time White Sox first baseman, but it that's one of the fun debates to have as baseball fans. When you've had two really good players have some great moments and some terrific achievements within the Chicago White Sox to compare and debate on who do you think uh, which one was better overall in the career? That's the good side of being a White Sox fan. Now let's go to the bad side and I'm sorry that we have to go to the bad place. White Sox fans, but let's let's shift gears and uh yeah let's talk about this very angry place and that would be Maricopa County Justice Court case TR2020-140915 as Tony Larusa is due to court on December 8th at 8:45 a.m. local time which would be 9:45 a.m. central time as Larusa and his lawyer will have a pretrial conference for his DUI charges on Thursday, November 12th. We finally got a statement for the white Sox consi- uh, concerning as far as this situation. Uh, but it really stems from the statement that LaRusse's lawyer, uh, Larry Kazan released uh, prior to the white Sox statement. And according to LaRusse's attorney, Quote, the legal process in Arizona, which began in February, has been delayed as a result of COVID 19. This matter should have come to a conclusion several months ago. The process is continuing, but my client, Mr. Tony LaRussa, is entitled to all the assumptions and protections afforded to anyone facing an accusation. It would be unfair and unwise for anyone outside the process to reach conclusions based on limited information. Given the ongoing nature of the proceedings, it would be inappropriate to say anything further at this time. I have faith in our system of justice and look forward to working within that system on behalf of my client. End quote. So that's the statement from Tony LaRusso's lawyer. Uh, as far as uh, based on limited information, the limited information that we have is really concerning, Jim. And obviously, we. We have spoken about this as far as on other programs. You have written a lot about this. Uh, You know, the White Sox followed up a statement backing up the direction of Lurusa's lawyer, holding off, commenting about his job status while there's an active case and wanting fans to know that they understand how serious these charges are. However, the Jerry Reinsdorf human megaphone, Bob Nightingale of USA Today, has already reported that La Russa's job is not in jeopardy and even going as far as in saying that this situation is more embarrassing than surprising. So if you follow me on Twitter and you may have heard me on 670 The Score of Joe Ostrowski, you know how I feel about this situation. I'm very sensitive to drinking and driving, and I think Larusa should no longer be the White Sox manager. But Jim, let's discuss what's next for the White Sox and address their comment, quote, we understand the seriousness of these charges, end quote. Do the White Sox actually understand by continuing to stand by La Rosa at this time? I think some White Sox do and some White Sox don't. that That's
2: kind of the, the weird thing about using the term White Sox in this case is that, um, well, it it sounds like I'm going to get political. I'm not it's just drawing a uh, yeah, comparison. But yeah, there are some uh, journalism practitioners and professors who say that under the Trump administration, that reporters shouldn't use the term White House because oftentimes Trump will contradict the White House, like the White House press secretary or uh, people involved will uh, have one message and then Trump will come out and say something completely different. And then uh, the other people have to retrofit their message to fit what Trump later said. And and so there's really no White House. It's Trump and then some of his employees. I think it's kind of the same thing here, where it's uh, the White Sox. You know, you, you can say they do or they can say they don't when it comes to seriousness. Um, right now, I'd say that Jerry Reinsdorf is not taking it seriously. You know, He's not serious about it, or he doesn't uh, appreciate just what this means to people and 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 how this has affected uh, a lot of people's lives and and why they're so uh you know I would, you use sensitive i would use angry and and maybe uh in a lot of cases like they have the the most valid of reasons to be angry and, and 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 emotional about it uh i i think other members of the white Sox front office and you know people who work for him probably understand it you know the seriousness a lot better than you know, Reinsdorf does and they don't really have a say or they don't feel they do or don't have the authority to push back or maybe just don't. Like, I think a lot of the White Sox front office is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of just how Reinsdorf has been treated over the years, the way Han and Kenny Williams have presented him is like this, um, you yeah, know, I guess more of like a grandfatherly type and just you know, that he's loyal, but he's, you know, very concerned about uh, the fans and, and, you know, he had to be sold on the rebuild because uh, he didn't want, uh you know, he didn't want to hurt the fans by having a rebuild. And now you're hearing that he's, you know, very impatient about winning and just, you know, they, they've always presented him, but he's never spoken for himself. So I think there's always been this, um, you know, the White Sox front office, the way the organization is run, just is, is kind of set up to present him in the best possible light and, 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 uh, you know, insulate him from public connection, public criticism, uh, public backlash. It's just, he's more of an abstract figure who, you know, nobody knows. And, uh, you know, we, we see him once in a while, he pops up, you know, uh, you know, he's visible at winter meetings. He talks Bob Nightingale, but in terms of like actual connection to Chicago fans, Chicago media, just normal people, there's no connection. So uh, I don't believe that Reinsorf is taking it seriously. And I think, you know, because he, is the chairman of the team. Uh, I think you have to say that the White Sox don't, even if it does, you know, doesn't reflect what a lot of employees believe, just because there isn't one employee who is really breaking through to counter that.
0: And you make a good point, Jim, because if this wasn't up to Reinsdorf, truly not up to Reinsdorf, we're not even talking about this, right? The White Sox would have probably hired A.J. Hinge if Rick got his say. Had his druthers. To use his favorite exactly phrase catchphrase, <laughs> yes. But you know, just some of the comments like, we're gonna wait for the legal process to play out. Okay, guess what's gonna be released on December 8th video, video of Larusa being arrested. Okay, when that gets released, it's gonna go public. If you haven't been shamed already, just wait. Because the memes are going to be coming, Jim. And more images of a drunk Tony La And going to the lawyer, okay, I get, you know, it's kind of a weird situation that this happened in February. And now we're hearing about it in late October, early November, thanks to the reporting of ESPN's Jeff Passan. Obviously, COVID played a factor into that. But let's say we had a normal 2020 I'm curious on how the Angels would have handled this, right? Did the mm-hmm. Angels know that this happened? Because he had dinner with other Angels executives when he got into this car crash during spring training. Did they know about this? Were they aware about this? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh and the Angels
2: have already had problems with Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so a lot of a lot of issues, yeah. right? Yeah.
2: No, it's, you know, and, and the lawyer has the right to say what he says because he's operating in like the actual court system where, you know, and, and it's very true what he's saying and that, you know, the uh, legal system has to play out before he receives any punishment on behalf of the government. But when it comes to like our response, when it comes to fan response, public response, like we're not beholden to that same uh, standard, uh, especially when it comes to the most highly visible leadership position on a team. Uh, That's what I think drives me most nuts about this is that, uh, you know, we're not trying to throw him in jail. We're not trying to say he should never work again. We're not saying that, uh, you know, that, you know, just he's persona non grata. But he shouldn't, you know, there's, there's no real reason why he should have a highly visible leadership position for, uh, especially, you know, among a front office, you know, in a lot of cases, or at least a lot of reports that didn't want him to be there. Like, there's no real reason to support that. And there's, uh you know, it's, uh you know, it'd be also one thing if this were his first mistake, but it's his second mistake. You know, it's his second time he's done it. And the first time he said he wouldn't happen, let it happen again. And just he learned his lesson and he made such a big uh, show of sincerity. You know, he kept using that word about uh, public protests and player empowerment, saying that he needed people to be sincere. Well, he just proved that he wasn't sincere about letting it happen again. And, you know, he might have a, you know, that might be a, a, a physical problem. You know, it might be like alcoholism and that's serious. And, you know, that should be, you know, that's not something to make fun of or, or disrespect the seriousness of it. But it also means like there are other things he needs to do that the White Sox need to do. Uh, in order to address that that doesn't involve giving him the White Sox manager job like if Reinstorf wanted to be a good friend uh, you know he could hire him to be an advisor he could hire him to uh, or you know he could just kind of I guess put him on the payroll in order to support him and help him with the program if LaRusso were willing but this is not like it's just not something he deserves Hall of Fame resume or not and that's you know you know, that Bob Nightingale podcast. And, you know, and that was another thing, too, is that, you know, he appears on the White Sox Talk podcast. Chuck Garfine pretends it doesn't exist. <laughs> like like Chuck Garfine disappears from Twitter. And, you know, it's, you know, Garfine's in a tough position because that is the, um, you know, that, that is the house operation. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting very emotional here. <laughs> that is the house operation. And, you know, he has to do his job. And I'm not sure if that was his idea or if that's like, We need somebody to present Reinsdorf's opinion on our vehicle. You know, that's when, you know, Garfine doesn't uh, tout it and and the White Sox, uh, you know, other NBC Sports Chicago people don't really tout it. It does lend uh, uh, some credence to the idea that Nightingale is foisted upon them. But it just, you know, it makes their job harder. Uh, It makes so many people's job harder. And, And to what end? like yeah you know, that's what I don't get is like you know, if Reinsdorf is loyal uh to you know and, and he's you know generous to his employees like how many employees is he compromising to get his way with this you know one uh you know just this one position this this one historical wrong that he wants to write even if that writing is even a second wrong it's just it's yeah. And Nightingale was pretty much a disgrace on that podcast. I don't know how much you want to get into that or how much you're planning to, but.
0: I listened to 20 seconds and I shut it off. It was that bad.
2: Yeah. The, the first sentence he said was, uh, it's embarrassing, but it's not serious. Yeah. That's and, when I stopped. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't blame you, especially, you know, given, you know, your, your connection to just the whole topic. I, I listened to the whole thing, just to try to figure out what the possible spin could be. And yeah, he likened, uh missing spring training to serve uh, a little bit of jail time to David Ross, missing time with the flu, the previous spring training. Like, the, yeah. and he sounded like way too familiar with Arizona DUI laws. Like that was, that was the <laughs> other thing too, is like, you know, and, and yeah, you know, I, I would, I would say like, yeah, this is kind of an outdated reference because like, you know, I, I think people's attitude on weed have changed. But I remember like in college, like there was always somebody who knew way too much about how weed laws work state to state. <laughs> you know for various reasons and you know how much possession you could have and you know and, and you know how much you could hold and how much you could you know, just and you're like huh you know you know you, there's a reason you must know a lot about that and i just had the same feeling too like why do you why are you so comfortable describing you know comparing arizona dui laws of this and downplaying it the way you are like it's just it was gross Yeah, uh, yeah you know, 20 seconds in to finish and, and uh I can see why Garfine did not want to tout it. And just like if he had to have Nightingale on and didn't want to publicize, it, just it's just another example of a person under Reinsdorf's purview or under his organization who's just, whose life is
0: made harder by this completely unnecessary decision. Now, I'm glad you mentioned as far as the DUI laws, because we need to explain a little bit more further on what could possibly be happening on December 8th. With Arizona DUI laws, the only way... That Larusa does not spend at least one day in jail is because of coronavirus. He's 76 years old, which puts him at high risk, and you don't want a first offender in Arizona going to jail and risk him getting COVID. That that very well could be his lawyer's angle in a plea deal to avoid any jail time. But the judge that will be sitting on this case, Judge Enrique Medina, uh, if that gets shot down by the judge. The White Sox manager, Jim, is going to jail for at least a day. Let me repeat that for those that are listening. The White Sox manager is going to jail if they don't come to a plea agreement. Now, this isn't going to get swept under the rug either, because I'm sure on the day of his pre-trial conference, again, we're going to get more photos and videos on the night that he was arrested. That will be released to show... LaRussa state when he was in custody. I don't understand the White Sox corporate bylaws, but I do understand public relations. And LaRussa, if he stays as manager, Jim, he's going to be doing interviews with the media daily, daily. When spring training starts to the season ends, he has to speak to the media daily He's going to be the voice of the ball club. You're going to hear more from LaRusa than you're going to hear from Rick Hahn. And by keeping him, it says the White Sox are willing to ignore the seriousness of his charges for the hopes that LaRusa could bring them a World Series title. I'm still expecting the White Sox to do the wrong thing and keep LaRusa to be their manager for the 2021 season. So, what do you expect will happen to Larusa's job status, Jim? It's
2: it's hard to tell. Like, I don't have a good feeling. I should say I don't have a a strong feeling about how it's going to fold. I could see it happening one of two ways, and that the stubbornness they're showing now is just how it's going to be. Like, it's just they're gonna. Uh, you know, Reinsdorf wants it. He's stubborn. Larusa's stubborn. Larusa's got pride or whatever, and 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 doesn't want to give up. So, you, they're just gonna. Put their heads down and, and just uh, plow their way through it. And, you know, Larousse is going to be cantankerous the whole way and be his usual grouchy self. And nobody's going to, like, enjoy talking to him or being around him. And just, uh, it's going to be, you know, unpleasant, but they're going to force it upon us because Reinsdorf wants it. The other thing I can see is, you know, the other reasonable outcome is that the courts decide whether, you know, he pleads guilty or pleads, you know, I imagine. He would have to plead guilty. I don't know if not, no contests were given the aid at a previous charge, but just you know, uh, you know, reaches some kind of plea or you know has a conviction on his record, and the White Sox use that as oh the courts decided he's guilty. We can't have this. Um, we are parting ways amicably. And I know that uh, John <clears throat> Greenberg he said he, he he tweeted me like when I was kind of talking about just where are they going to go from here uh, when it comes to hiring. He said that he just kind of uh, tongue in cheek, but also said like it might be the case. I think Scott Merkin backed him up too. And just seeing how it could unfold, is like a situation where Joe McEwing is now the manager for hmm. a year or like you know interim situation, and then they try it again next year. <laughs> and it's like that's I could see that happening too, where just uh, they let the courts decide. They hide behind the court's decision rather than um, you know making themselves, and rather than you know, having to fire him, they 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 treat it as some kind of violating policy, but it just that still doesn't explain like why they hired him when they knew or supposedly knew. And you know, and Scott Reifert said that he knew, but the way they're acted about it reflected that they didn't. Or at least, you know, maybe Reinsdorf knew, and so they can say the White Sox knew. But White Sox employees, the White Sox employees tasked with crafting a message and <laughs> a strategy to um not necessarily counter the claims, but like just do a little bit of image rehabilitation you know like anything saying like you know you know trotting out the seriousness line right away or uh saying like you know that we respect the issue that we've you know we were working on um you know getting them on a program or something like that just something reflecting the seriousness of it they did not do that and so i think uh that's the other big thing too is like no matter what happens it just that's a huge issue is that they you hired him while knowing it's or allegedly knowing it. They acted like they didn't know it. Were they trying to sweep it under the rug? Were they Did Reinsdorf just not care about whether it's us, whether it's about his own employees? Like, just how far did his neglect reach? And how many people did it, you know, kind of screw over and and make look like jackasses? <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, that's, I think, a tough thing. And, and you yeah, know, the White Sox are pretty much an airtight organization when it comes to um, infighting, you know, especially after the Asagian era, Um, and the fact that you're hearing people disagree about the hiring, even, like, secondhand through rival executives, like, that points to at least some dissatisfaction in the ranks, and I wonder, you know, whatever happens with this, and if they have to backtrack, and if they end up with Joe McEwing when they wanted A.J. Hench, uh,
0: I just wonder if there are going to be any ramifications from that. That's a good point. I didn't think about the possibility that Joe McEwing would just take over for this season and then they would reevaluate after the 2021 season. But this is obviously not the way that you really want to start as far as your contention window for the 2021 season beyond when you're going to have to try to meet lofty expectations. And let's face it, you know, free agency the White Sox have to be active this offseason to help improve the team. And you're going to have agents and free agents ask questions of what's going on with the managerial situation with the Chicago White Sox. And the fact that this is going to drag on for three more weeks. And at the beginning of December, we're going to get more information and maybe there will be a resolution. If not, uh, that's, you know, again, this is so White Sox. They just let things linger. They let things fester, and it, the problem just continues to grow. In my opinion, just end it. Okay, this is his issue. Let Larusa face it alone. You are a business. You are a sports franchise. And you need to get going in some type of direction and figure out the rest of your coaching staff, which it sounds like that they will announce the rest of the coaching staff next week. But there are still plenty of good managers out there that you could hire. Go get your next choice. Maybe that's Bruce bochi Bring him into the fold and focus on the free agents and trades. Do not have this distract you and... <laughs> Jim, I can't think of anything else that could distract a ball club more than not knowing if their manager is going to have to serve a day of jail when they're in spring training.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just, you know, it, it, the unfortunate thing too is like Jose Abreu wins the MVP and then he's asked about him. Like he's gone on record about uh, La Russa's issues more than any other person in the White Sox organization, any other leader, any other executive. That's, that's a, that's a bad spot to put a
0: player in. It is. But I think he handled it well. Yeah. He talked he to Larusa. Yeah. And he's got others... he's got Larusa's back. So we'll see. But again, Bray is the leader in that clubhouse. Everybody gravitates to Jose Breu. and it's, it's come out recently as well that La Russa has talked to other players as well. I know that there was quite a bit made when Tim Anderson admitted that he hadn't talked to Tony La Russa and you know, La Russa really wasn't naming players on his roster when he was doing media interviews, both with the White Sox. And of course, with the MLB network, this is off to a terrible start though, for a very questionable decision to begin with. And uh, we'll see how it is resolved. But at this moment, I do expect Larusa to still be the manager of the Chicago White Sox for the 2021 season. And I am very interested to see how fans react to that. Because there have been some very angry fans, rightfully so, uh, contacting the White Sox sales and marketing department, especially Brooks Boyer, the chief marketing officer for the Chicago White Sox. And they're going to hear it. And if they continue to stick with Larusa through all of this, I wonder what fan morale is going to be heading into Opening Day two thousand twenty-one.
2: Yeah, I think you know the fan morale thing. You know, if the White Sox come out of the gate hot, I think a lot will be forgiven. But yeah, just it's such an unnecessary hole. And and the way I described it was just uh, I think I I did on Twitter, just saying like that. You know, when you get, um, you know, when you get busted for DUI once, you know, that's that can be maybe a mistake probably isn't, you know, in a lot of cases. I think it's just you know, uh repeat behavior that finally got caught, but you know, people make mistakes. People learn from it. Maybe it's a wake up call needed, but when it's, you know, when it's two DUI charges, two credible, looks like a credible you know, uh, arrest and, and you know, it looks like the evidence against him is fairly substantial. And I'm not sure how he can get out of it with uh, no conviction or, or some kind of agreement. It's like, that's just bad citizenry. Like he, that's a bad citizen. Like it's you know you hear like great manager better person like great manager not a good person, and and so if if people want to be unhappy about it it's like that's not unreasonable if,
0: you, if your team hired a bad citizen when there were better options out there it just it's not good, it is not good. Hopefully we get a resolution on this sooner because there are plenty of reasons to be excited about the Chicago White Sox and for the 2021 season. We're going to talk about one of those topics with the new pitching coach of the Chicago White Sox. We're going to take a quick break, but after a word from our sponsors, we talk about that new White Sox pitching coach, Ethan Katz, next on the Sox Machine Podcast.
1: When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.
0: Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. So we shift from our bad compartment as White Sox fans to the intriguing compartment. And that is the rumored hiring of new pitching coach, Ethan Katz first reported by Dave Williams of Barstool sports. You may remember the name as he was Lucas Giolito's pitching coach back in high school and has spent multiple seasons with uh, a few MLB clubs. Most recently, the San Francisco giants Katz was instrumental in helping Giolito make significant adjustments after his 2018 season for Giolito to finish in the top 10 in the American League Cy Young voting the last two seasons. Now, Katz gets an opportunity to work full-time with Giolito and try to help fix Dylan Cease while getting Dane Dunning and Michael Kopech ramped up for full-time work. Again, Jim, this is an interesting hire, a pleasant surprise after the Detroit Tigers hired University of Michigan pitching coach Chris Fetter to take over their role what do you make of this hiring, and how do you think Katz helps the White Sox?
2: Well, I, I think it's the best they could probably do under the circumstances. Like Feder didn't work out. They were also, I think, James Fox uh, had tied the White Sox to Matt Hobbs, the pitching coach for Arkansas, and, and Arkansas has its own kind of—they're uh, a pitching machine, and they're also like a pitching coach machine because that's how West Johnson got hired for the Twins. They hired him from Arkansas, so. Hobbs uh, was going to possibly be a candidate for the White Sox position, but when it came to like a collegiate coach leaving a really good program and and potentially having his choice of uh, jobs down the line, it didn't seem like he'd want to leave that to go work for a manager who might not be your manager. Like I think you'd want a little bit more certainty. I think a guy like Katz, um, you know, uh, somebody who's worked his way up the ranks I think once you get to pitching coach, if you've been in professional baseball and and you've been knocking around as a minor league coach and a coordinator and assistant coach, I think once you get to pitching coach once, I think that uh, offers a lot of job security in the future, whether it's with that one organization or whether it's with another organization or like I'm thinking about like Juan Nieves, who was the White Sox bullpen coach. Then he got hired by the Red Sox to be their main pitching coach. Got fired from there, ended up with the Marlins. Then he ended up with the Tigers, the Meyer League role. Now he's the assistant coach under Fetter. Like once you get to the main job, you can work for a long time in that capacity. So I think for somebody like Katz, who is a young guy, um, 37 next year, has um, is, is been in the pro ranks and is looking to break out, I think no matter the job stability or the, the stability of the manager, I think it uh, behooves him to find a main gig. <laughs> that uh, for a front office that wants him around and wants him to establish himself and wants to give him some room to, um, you know, give the staff and pitching program an identity. So it makes a lot of sense for a guy like him. So uh, I think it's a mutually uh, beneficial arrangement. And I'm hoping that it's not like uh, there are no drawbacks for cats. <laughs> like like that, uh, whatever happens with LaRusso, whether he stays, whether he goes, that that doesn't cause friction or that doesn't, because, I mean, like, the I think the thing with the pitching coach hiring is that I think this is what Rick Hahn wanted. Like, a outside voice, fresh approach, uh, non-insular hire. You know, they could have gone with Matt Zaleski and explained it, and we've been like, eh, fine. <laughs> you know, Like, like nothing against Zaleski, but just, you know, the White Sox hire from within so often that really wanted to see him go outside. You know, and the fact that they went outside with a guy who's well-regarded and who's been written about even outside of Giolito, like Eno Saris, Uh, mentioned him in a roundup of future pitching coaches, uh, you know, people who are doing the work and um, making an impact at the coordinator ranks and assistant ranks. Um, Yeah. It's a case where I think they more or less got, maybe they didn't get their guy, but they got a good second choice or good third choice perhaps. And, and one that I think White Sox fans should be happy with based on what we know so far.
0: Yeah. I think that this is a good fallback option outside of Chris Fetter. Obviously I am biased, I had Chris Fetter, number one, with the bullet for White Sox pitching coaches. And now he is with the Detroit Tigers, staying close to home. It's ai don't think he has to move, actually. <laughs> he could still continue to live in Ann Arbor. Uh, but for Cats, as you mentioned, Jim, this is a great opportunity. He gets to work with Giolito again. And the work that he's done with Flaherty and Max Fried of the Atlanta Braves and just having that type of experience and Really taking what is in right now as far as understanding pitching analytics and getting pitchers to make those adjustments to get the desired outcome. He's already did it with Giolito. And again, he's been instrumental in that turnaround. And I'm excited to see what Cats can do as far as coming up with a plan for Dylan Cease to get him on track. If the White Sox decide to keep Ronaldo Lopez, maybe there's things that he could do with Lopez. Uh, but obviously a big part of his job is going to get Dane dunny and Michael Kopech ramped up uh, for possible full-time work in the 2021 season. Uh, no matter how many starts that either of those pitchers make, they're probably going to be counted on at some point next season. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think Cease is going to be the guy everybody – or at least a lot of writers people get to talk to cats are going to ask him about just in terms of uh what he brings or what ideas he has because i think you know i think <laughs> i guess the one drawback or the one uh you know if i were to kind of uh burst above a little bit just say like giolito doesn't need the help anymore like giolito's good <laughs> like uh yeah i guess you can make him better or maybe it's a little bit of james mccann uh, insurance in case he leaves and uh, maybe cats can help uh, provide some of the uh, uh, knowledge to Grandal or whoever the other catcher is in terms of uh, w- what makes him tick. But uh, otherwise, like, you know, Giolito doesn't need the help. You know, he's already great. Other guys, you know, I, I want to hear what he has for Cease. And I think that's going to be easy. I think Cease will be the most popular um, hypothetical or the the pitcher writers and, and uh, hosts point to in terms of what do you have for him? Like, what's your... History with guys like him. Uh, What's your history with design? Getting fastballs to stop cutting or move in the desired way. Getting uh, better slider command. Getting, like, correcting mechanical flaws that result in, like, the kind of fastball and slider pulling and yanking that uh, Cease does. Like, I think that's going to be a very easy hypothetical or just a very easy uh, thing to describe to uh, cats. And for readers and listeners, uh, a very tangible example of uh, just... A guy who needs coaching help, or at least a guy who seems like he needs coaching help, and uh, you know what theoretically can
0: be done. Well, the rest of the White Sox coaching staff will be released this upcoming week. We'll have more coverage on these hirings on SoxMachine.com. It'll be interesting to see. Who will be LaRusse's bench coach if it is Joe McHughie? Maybe Joe McHughie's going to be interim manager, as Jim suggested before the break. Uh, If Frank Medicino will stay as hitting coach, and who could be the new faces at first and third base? Uh, But continuing on as far as news for the Chicago White Sox, some media news. Also, on Thursday, November 12th, the Chicago White Sox and ESPN 1000 have announced a multi-year deal for the new radio home. I'm happy for Jonathan Hood and Fred Hubner mm-hmm. uh, as they have been good friends to this podcast, having both Jim and I on their shows on ESPN 1000 uh, over the years. Stars Grove. Dyers Grove represents, <laughs> uh, for the play by play, uh, as far as radio team, Darren Jackson has already been confirmed to be coming back as the primary radio analyst and Andy Mazur's one-year contract expired after the season. Uh, but it sounds like that there's a good chance that Mazur could return too, and, uh, we'll hear later about who the new pre and post game show host will be later, Uh, Be kind of interesting to see, you know, I I saw that John Greenberg of The Athletic was suggesting names. Maybe Fred could do it or ESPN 1000 could hire Connor McKnight. Uh, Connor, Mm -hmm. again, frequent guest as far as in this podcast, friend of the show. He was the White Sox pregame postgame host when they were with 890 WLS. But again, you know, you're know you going to hear a lot about this, but the last time the White Sox were in ESPN 1000, they won the World Series. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, the White Sox will have a new radio home instead of WGN. They are now going to be on ESPN 1000.
2: Well, the, the one thought I had was uh, Andy Faust, I think, uh, Sox Machiner. Uh, in his off-season plan and he mentioned also in the podcast that he wanted dave wills back and i believe dave wills was the pre and post game host last year they were on espn a thousand uh so that came to mind when they when they said that maser wasn't necessarily coming back or that they were uh you know he was on a one-year contract and they're evaluating their options that was one thing that came back to mind like huh like there's a connection there you know maybe that's the case but uh I didn't get to hear a lot of Mazer just because uh, just with the pandemic and such, I spent a lot of, you know, didn't spend much time out <laughs> this summer. And so I, I watched pretty much all the games. I caught a game or two here, but I, I don't think I caught any road games uh, that he had to call off a monitor, but uh, it'd be unfortunate, I think for him just, uh, you know, getting a gig that you know, could be one he could hold for a long time. And, you know, Chicago is close to his heart and then, Pandemic happens, radio station uh, change happens, and it's kind of uh, left out. So, uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, interested to see what happens, just because it seems like if they didn't have a change in mind, they might have just stuck with it. But maybe they, it is true that just with the deal finally being done, that maybe that opens doors that uh, in interviews that maybe they couldn't do before.
0: If they decided to go in another direction, though, for play by play. And I would like Andy to come back because he only got an opportunity to call a 60 game season and not being able to travel with the team. And I can't imagine doing radio broadcasts off a monitor because you got to do a lot more talking than a TV broadcast like Jason Benetti and Steve Stone uh, did in 2020. I'd like to give him an opportunity for a full season. But if they do decide to go in another direction for play-by-play, you can always move Andy to the pre- and post-game show host. He would knock that out of the park, too. I'm a big Andy Mazur fan, if you can't tell. So I hope that he has some type of role with White Sox radio broadcasts uh, for the 2021 season. But we'll see what happens and we'll see what direction ESPN 1000 will go. Uh, As far as the the new broadcast home for the White Sox and and just one thing that was uh, something that caught my attention doing some research on this the last time the White Sox were on ESPN 1000 gym was 2005 and the radio deal was five million dollars a season this deal is for three million if you just wanted to know how much the radio market has grown uh, for Major League Baseball uh, they it's not a lot of money that the White Sox get from the radio deal. It's all about television these days. It's all about video. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was just something that caught my Mm. attention is that 15 years later, they're getting 2 million, two fewer million dollars than they were in 2005 for their radio rights. But again, the White Sox are on ESPN 1000 moving forward, moving over to major league baseball news as that covers everything for the White Sox side of things. Uh, Some really exciting and, uh, I think, terrific news uh, by the Miami Marlins, making a significant and historical hire after they let Michael Hill go, who was the only other black Major League Baseball front office executive, uh, other than the White Sox, Kenny Williams. The Marlins replaced Hill with the first woman GM in baseball history, Kim Ng. And Kim started her professional career with the Chicago White Sox from the 1990 to 1996 seasons, working her way out from intern uh, to assistant GM. Uh, she was then hired by Brian Cashman in 1998 as assistant GM, where she won three world series rings with the New York Yankees, and then took the same job uh, following Dan Evans, uh, who was with the White Sox uh, during the time that Kim was there. Uh, for until 2011, she was with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and then she became a vice president for Major League Baseball, and as far as the commissioner office uh, handling operations uh, for the last nine years. And honestly, this might be the best resume ever for a first time general manager, Jim. It's unfortunate that it's taken this long for Kim in. Uh, came in to be hired as general manager, as she's been interviewing for this gig with several teams since 2005. But the Marlins and Derek Jeter made the historical decision of hiring the first general manager in Major League Baseball. And uh, I think that this is exciting, and it's gotten terrific reception so far throughout everyone in Major League Baseball. And uh, I'm excited to see what she'll do for the Marlins, who could be an up-and-coming team in 2021.
2: Yeah, and it's not just baseball either. I think it's North American men's sports. You know the first one to uh, first woman to take the that position or that equivalent position of general manager for any team. That's it is a big deal. And it's a you know, just you know, her having a 30 year resume and, and having a lot of high ranking positions with successful organizations and never quite getting this opportunity until now, I think that does um you know, in in ways she's overqualified and it's like, yeah you know, it's, it's not good that she had to be this qualified in order to get a shot, but it's, you know, just, it's, it, it takes a lot to uh, change preconceived notions and also just the, you know, when there's never been anybody like her, uh, it's hard for people to envision people like her succeeding, or it's hard for people to envision people they haven't seen succeed in that role succeed. Uh, and then that's why it's such a big deal is because just, um, now women who are working in the business now, uh, you know, girls who are evaluating options and evaluating how they can work in sports, see is like, it's a possible destination. You know, it, they, they, they've actually seen it happen. And I think the idea is that like, you know, uh, Eng needed um, 30 years of of high-ranking experience, or uh, a lot of those years high-ranking, in order to finally land a gig. But the next woman who is, you know, on a similar track might, you know, hopefully, take a lot less time to uh, establish herself uh, if she just has the accomplishments and experience that you know the a lot of other first-time GMs have. And you know, just it, it eventually, like the hardest work has already been done. You know, I think that's the hope. And we got a question in in our uh, PO Socks bag from Asin asking who the next one is. And yeah, you know, I was doing a survey and I was looking up uh, articles to see, um, you know, who the next woman GM might be. And it, I don't see any like natural candidates yet, just because. Uh the one that came to mind was uh Jean Afterman, the assistant GM and I believe she's now vice president in the Yankees organization. she's been uh like second in command to Brian Cashman uh for now almost two decades. And uh she spoke about her job at the Sabre Seminar I attended in Boston. Um and, and she was it was a blast to hear her talk. She's a great storyteller and um you know just kind of no nonsense about just how hard it is for uh you know, women to stick in, in, in these positions and, and, uh, make an impression and, and, endure, uh, you know, but, you know, depending on, you know, where she is in her career, she just might like being in New York the rest of the time. So, uh, yeah, that was the one that jumped out to me There, there you know, I, there are more women kind of advancing in the scouting ranks, uh, you know, going into like, you know, either scouting or scouting director, minor league development, um, you know, there's, there's that. What I haven't seen much of yet in my research is just women kind of making a dent in like the baseball ops like yeah I'm thinking like the way Rick Hahn got his job the way others do like contracts um and and, and the MBA style uh, path of advancement haven't seen at least you know, in my in my research the you know, the research I did today not a whole. Volume uh, of research I've done, but just haven't seen anybody on that path yet that who at least is known. But there are more women kind of getting into the uh, you know analytics and and so like the the kind of I guess starter baseball ops job. So hopefully you know the I think the idea is just they build the kind of resume that Eng built, except you know maybe only five to ten years of experience instead of thirty. I think that's kind of the goal here.
0: Yeah, one name I'm going to throw out Raquel Fiera of the Boston Red Sox. She's currently executive vice president, assistant general manager. Uh, the reason I mentioned her is that she was instrumental in Exander Bogart's extension with the Boston Red Sox. Okay. I mean, I missed her then. So. Yeah. I, I was trying to think of off the top of my head as well. And I know that she's pretty high ranking as far as with the Boston Red Sox, even with Heim Bloom coming in as the chief baseball officer and Brian o- O'Halloran is the the general manager of the Red Sox. But obviously, Haim is in the same spot that Theo Epstein is with the Chicago Cubs, um, really calling the, the shots. But yeah, Raquel Farah, um, prior to Haim Bloom joining the Red Sox, when they extended Xander Bogart, she was pretty instrumental in that contract extension between the Red Sox and, and Bogarts. But yeah, it's not a lot. But I'm hoping... That this does shift direction, because I don't think you need to be a man to be a general manager in Major League Baseball. I mean, even with the White Sox, Rick Hahn's background is more contract negotiations. He wasn't a a player mm-hmm. development guru that became general manager, kind of like Kenny Williams did. Uh, his path is went different. And if you don't need to have that skill to become a general manager, well then, yeah, you don't have to be a baseball player to to run operations for a team. You just have to understand how baseball works. And I think anyone with any background, any gender, any race could be able to handle that. And the fact that Kim's not only the first, you know, female general manager in Major League Baseball or North American professional sports, but she's also the first Asian American general manager That was also a bit surprising because think about, you know, in Japan and in Korea, I'm sure they have great ideas as well. I'm not, I'm a bit surprised why we don't see more uh, Asian Americans uh, taking these type of significant roles with major league ball Clubs. So hopefully, you know, there was reporting, you know, this is an quote unquote out of the box hiring. I hope it's not out of the box moving forward. And there are some really smart people around this world that could help your teams. You do not have to continue to hire the white male Ivy Leaguers and hoping that this guy is going to turn around everything for your franchise. Uh, Maybe it is time to look outside of what is the norm for those that run baseball operations. And I hope that she is very successful And with the luck that the Miami Marlins have in the postseason, they just finally lost a postseason game in their franchise history this season. Uh, Again, that's a very exciting team. They got some terrific young players, especially in the starting pitching staff. And Derek Jeter's got her back. So I think this is a very exciting time for Miami. And it sounds like the fan base is also very excited for this hire And uh, we'll see what she does. But I am definitely looking forward and I am rooting for her to be successful with the Miami Marlins. All right. You guys had questions for us. So let's answer them next in P.O. Socks.
1: When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your Internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter or... For those that help support Sox Machine on patreon.com slash Machine, you can submit your questions there. And for this mailbag, we got so many questions from our Patreon supporters that we're rolling with these questions as they are excellent questions. So thank you to everyone uh, that submitted questions on Patreon and always thank you for your support. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Scott. And Scott is asking, do we know anything about the scouts with the Chicago White Sox in terms of COVID layoffs? And the second part of his question is, how does one scout amateur talent these days?
2: Well, I haven't seen much in the way of an update. Back in I think it was July, back during the summer, Jerry Reinsdorf uh, foreshadowed it, and then it was really you know, reported that the White Sox were doing like across the board cuts in the front office to uh, a staff reduction in order to, um, you know, just save some money because of money lost or profits not earned during the pandemic and it seemed the way it was described like a very across the board even cut kind of uh, across departments across age and experience levels and not in a way to dismantle scouting or not as a way to like eliminate like old school scouts and, and throw more into video or keep the resources and video the same it seemed like very much like we want to keep the same structural shape of our organization. We just uh, need to cut back a little bit and we plan to restore it once finances are restored. And given that the White Sox, based on just reports, based on their own descriptions, they had a beefier scouting department than a lot of other teams. Like they went more into scouts while other teams were getting away from it and, and going more into video and analytics. It seems like even if they do cut some of their scouts from their department, they should be still well-staffed. They, they, they shouldn't have a shortage. So, you know, unless anything has changed and, you know, I haven't seen any updates. I did see the Cubs, you know, they they I think it was more than 100 or something. Uh, people they laid off, I saw there was a big uh, backlash to that, but I did not see the equivalent story of what the White Sox have done so far. So I'm not positive if those have taken effect, but they were supposed to take effect after the season. Um, as for scouting, like just in general, right now I think it's fairly... Open and you might know this better, better than I do. Um, just that's you know they were restricted during the season, especially during the, you know when it came to the draft. Really couldn't get in person looks, but I think after the draft with showcases and such, they were free to attend. You know, based on just the uh, rules and safeguards that the um, you know facilities that the jurisdictions and, and the event organizers had, but there weren't any kind of league um, edicts that were blocking scouts from doing their work at the amateur level. So I'm guessing right now that's still the case unless, you know, as it's going, that the COVID numbers flare up and, you know, more harsh measures need to be restored in order to uh, knock the numbers back down. But at least that's my understanding of it is right now um, the in-person restrictions are over and whenever there
0: are showcases, uh, scouts will be free to attend. Yeah, teams right now, Are further ahead scouting the prep players than they are on the college level. Now that's odd, because for the college guys in your database scouting players, you probably the teams have scouting reports on the players that are in college right now since they were 15 years old when they first became, you know, breaking out on the scene on the showcase level. But on the college level, many programs have participated in fall ball. I think it was a case-by-case basis for universities, for scouts to be able to watch what happened in in fall ball and and see as far as any type of progression. Don't be surprised at this upcoming draft because of the the way that scouting was able to be done during COVID. If we see more prep players taking the first 10 picks, obviously it's really far away. But we're also hearing already on how college baseball – could be happening in the spring. It sounds like the big 10 is not going to have any non-conference games outside of the teams in their conference. I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in what I just said, but the big 10 schools are just, it sounds like they're just going to play against each other. There's going to be a certain allotment of games that count as conference games, but you also have to have a certain allotment that counts as non-conference games. And I think they're just going to play each other and some of these games are going to count as conference games Mm -hmm. and some games will just count as non-conference. So the Big Ten will just stay in their bubble and just play against each other. Some people will say that's disappointing, but obviously with the situation that's going on, especially in the Midwest, uh, that's probably the best that they can do. This could all go away, though, Mm -hmm. if things do not get better on the college football front. And if college baseball has any type of delay, because if money becomes a concern, the spring sports are going to get hit hard. And obviously baseball is one of those spring sports. So we'll see, we'll see which conferences actually play, but on a, on a scouting, you know, scouting perspective, it is definitely having a better understanding on the upcoming prep class. And, some unknown on the college level and that's usually reverse so scott thank you so much for your question our next question comes from duck snorting can of corn and they're asking jim the big concern with tony la Russa is that if they don't win he will lose the clubhouse fast any thoughts on jose abreu being a stabilizing force and maintaining team-wide professionalism Or will he just silently go about his business if the clubhouse drama arises?
2: I think he can be one stabilizing force, but I think with the way clubhouses are and just the cultural divides, language divides, that it seems like there, in a lot of clubhouses, at least there are You know, cliques or factions are just based on, uh, I would say circles is maybe the best way to put it, just circles of players who can communicate freely with each other based on shared language, shared background, etc. And I think we saw that with 2016 with, uh, you know, the whole Adam LaRoche thing. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that frustrated me most about that situation was that you heard a lot from Chris Sale, you heard a lot about, you know, a lot from Adam Eaton. You did not hear anything from Abreu. You did not hear anything from Jose Quintana. You did not hear anything from uh, Melky Cabrera or any of the other Spanish-speaking players. And I always thought about Abreu, like, you know, when when LaRoche was uh, retiring because he couldn't have his kid every day and, you know, Abreu hadn't seen his kid in two and a half years at that point or two years at that point. It came to mind, just like, I wonder what Abreu is thinking. And, and, you know, he's not probably going to say anything. And, yeah, there's nobody for him to say it to, even if he wanted to say it, <laughs> because there's nobody in the White Sox media who, uh, you know, speaks his language at least fluently enough to where, you know, they would have off-the-record conversations. So, you know, that was that's what came to mind when it comes to, like, you know, some kind of clubhouse divide because I can see, like, you know, La connecting with some players, not others. And I think, you know, probably if LaRussa's smart, and he is smart when it comes to managing, that he probably, you know, has some idea of, you know, who he needs to have in his corner to not lose a clubhouse, and Abreu might be one of them, but just based on the way other clubhouses have foundered based on weak leadership or uh, in the case of like LaRusso, like just, you know, perhaps this is kind of unprecedented. You know, if he comes to the White Sox needing to serve a day of time, it's just like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to break, but based on the way the clubhouse has broken down before that, you know, Brayu himself can't be expected to uh, keep the whole thing together and no one player really should. It's great. If you have that one galvanizing force, but I think, you know, part of the reason you hire a manager is in order to keep the general uh, clubhouse working together. And and then you have some players emerge, whether it's a pitcher, position player for their respective positions, or players for their respective uh, backgrounds or who they communicate with that kind of do it. But putting all that in Abreu, it kind of reminds me of the way they put it all in Paul Canerco, and that wasn't a good idea either. You should just really have a manager who is really respected
0: and an adult about everything that takes care of the big picture stuff. Well, duck snorting can of corn. Thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor, and Mark is asking, there were reports that Renteria asked for a third starting pitcher at the trade deadline this year. If Tony La Russa was managing the white Sox this past season, it went to Reinsdorf that he needed a third starting pitcher at the trade deadline. Would the white Sox have made a deal? Yeah, that's
2: the other problem with this hiring. The way it went about is that the White Sox have a history of really tangled chains of command, and you know, really flared up the most when it came to the end of the Ozzie Guillen era, in which Ozzie was trying to get Kenny Williams fired. Kenny Williams did not seem to have the power to fire Ozzie, like yeah. You know, so they all kind of directly reported, or you know, Reinsdorf had the ultimate say over all of them as individuals. And it uh, basically uh, boiled over for months before it was actually resolved. And even, I think, with Robin Ventura. And it's unclear with Ventura in terms of whose idea it was to keep him for as long as he was around. It was clear at the end that it was Reinsdorf's idea to manage or not manage Ventura's exit. And he did a very terrible job of it. And, you know, that proved the whole idea that, like, you know, you can't have... uh, you know, it's not a smart idea to have an owner favorite also be the manager and, and not allow the general manager or the team president or whoever to be able to cleanly fire a guy if he's not working out. And that was, I think, the good thing about Renteria coming in, coming in from outside the organization. You know, they, they fired him when they thought they had an opportunity to upgrade. And that's something that hiring a non owner favorite affords you the ability to get better and, and change leaders as you see fit. And I think that was the idea with Han is like, okay, yeah, he wasn't exactly my guy. Now I'm going to hire my guy. And then Reinsdorf didn't let him hire his guy. And maybe not even Kenny Williams guy. And uh, that's where you kind of fall back into that. Well, technically Larusa reports to Han and Kenny Williams, but he also is protected by Reinsdorf. So those two leaders don't really apply to him. Maybe they, providing the players they have the say over who's on his roster, but also might not. You know, if LaRue says cranky about it, if he doesn't like who he's getting, if he doesn't like what a young player is doing, uh, he just might go straight to the source. Or, or, you know, as Mark mentioned, you know, he might want to try to get a player or, or, or help his position when he doesn't believe in a guy and... Uh, Rick Hahn and, and, and Kenny Williams might believe in that young player who's trying to stick or might think that they have somebody else in store that they might want to go with. And who is Reinsdorf going to listen to? And uh, based on past history, you don't know. Like there, there's no real way to feel good about it. So that's, I think, the other reason and a very valid reason to not like this hire is just that it retangles the chain of command when that's already had disastrous results before. So yeah, it's it's even if even if uh, the hire you know even if Larusa came to this job with no DUI charge on him, that would be another reason to not like it.
0: Yeah, that that was my concern from the very beginning when this hire was made. So Mark, I'd just answer your question. I think the White Sox would have a 13 starting third starting pitcher. If Larusa was the manager uh, this season. But yeah, if he does continue to stay on as far as manager, I am curious to know on how that relationship is going to work. But according to Rick Hahn, he when he does speak to the media that they make these major decisions together as a group. Typically it's Jerry, Kenny, and himself. But now I wonder if Larusa will get invited into that room, so there'll be four people making that group decision uh, instead of one. We, yeah, we come to a consensus and we take no ownership. The White Sox Way baby. But Mark, thank you so much for your question, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week for p o sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can help support Socks Machine at patreon.com slash Machine, where you can receive extra content from us uh, with the podcast not being a typical regular schedule. Show at this moment during the off season. Again, we're, we're shifting to a format of when there is major news, we will podcast until spring training comes back and then we'll go back to our weekly format. And when the 2021 regular season begins, we'll go back to podcasting five days a week to cover the 2021 season. But Jim's still answering your questions in PO Socks for our Patreon supporters. So if you like the Q&A format and you want more content, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up today. We have several different tiers uh, for however, however you want to support Sox Machine. And again, we really do appreciate your guys' support, especially during these times. Again, if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson.
1: Only on Showtime.